When we look back at the last year of various lockdowns, it's easy to see why the usual amount of course content hasn't been taught. And with the best will in the world, not to mention the heroic teacher efforts across the board, there's no way that remote learning could be a substitute for being in the classroom. Of course, it follows then that some learning hasn't been effective among students as you'd normally expect. Now, while it's clear that there's no fault here, the impact is being acutely felt by our young people. They're expected to not only pick up where they left off, but also to catch up to where they should be. And in the immortalised words of teens everywhere, this is so unfair. Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, they could be broad themes such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. Now, these are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at how best to deal with the issue of post-COVID catch-up. I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Fairlam. Alex is an assistant head teacher and teacher of history for a secondary school in the northeast of England. Alex regularly writes for a variety of publications and has designed learning resources which have been used across the nation. Alex's teaching interests and research are focused upon creative teaching and learning strategies and resources, including recently how best to motivate and manage students' learning post-lockdown. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. There's absolutely no escaping the fact that our students have not covered as much of the curriculum as they would have done if the pandemic hadn't struck. And our six teens are acutely, if not crushingly, aware of it. However, each of them feels that they've been working hard and doing exactly what was asked. And this has made the idea of catching up especially unjust to them. Alex, obviously there's a difference in subject coverage compared to previous years, but do you think we're undermining our team's confidence with the language that we're using? Absolutely. And I think what we've got to bear in mind is that we are architects of the curriculum. So whilst it is that there are examination specs which determine what it is that we teach kind of from year 10 upwards to year 13, actually at Key Stage 3 and in primary schools, we are the architects of that. And therefore, we have the ability to be able to adjust and recalibrate the curriculum to ensure that the children are meeting the threshold concepts that we would like them to do and that schema development takes place. And it's about how teams work together, both within the departments, but also whole school, to ensure that that breadth is met. And it's about looking at the curriculum and distilling it into what are the essentials, so the essential threshold concepts, including vocabulary, and then having a look at the desirables. 
And through that, you can make sure that you are covering the essentials. And if it is the children progress through the work, they consolidate their prior learning and they're ready to move on in the next sequence of learning. Then you've got those desirables, that hinterland knowledge, which you can then kind of flesh out that kind of curriculum. And I think it's just all about kind of the word I'll probably use is recalibrating. And we've got this really good opportunity before we return to the school to remap our curriculum and then when we return to school and we're able to gauge again the learning of the children once they return then we'll be able to kind of remap that curriculum again and make sure that we make appropriate adjustments to it. So as a parent how do you distinguish between or rather for the parents how do you distinguish between architect of curriculum versus the specification because we might have thought that actually it was all being taught in the same way. So what schools have been working hard on over the past couple of years, I would probably say, is looking at things like progression models. So making sure that when it is that we're looking at the curriculum, that the exam isn't the driver. And that might have been the case in the past where it is that all of the curriculum was centered towards this end goal and meeting the exam. When actually what it is, is we should be looking at our subjects as a domain of knowledge from which we are the architects that create the curriculum from that domain that then enables them to be able to be assessed on an aspect of that kind of domain, because we know that exams won't cover everything that they've studied. So it's been really kind of using the work of kind of Mary Myatt and Christine Council to look at progression models and how it is that through year seven up until year 13, we are progressing the children through the different elements of knowledge and we're continuously revisiting it, almost like layering back over it as schema development. So if, for example, I'm looking at something like Elizabeth Tudor in year eight, it might be by the time that I do history and medicine, which is an exam specification, you know, that looks at kind of the new remedies that came about during the times of exploration in Elizabeth the first time and impact that had on medicine like sarsaparilla. Now, because they've already first met that in year eight and I've continuously recalled that and threaded that into my curriculum, that means that that is existing knowledge which we are building and enhancing as part of schema development. It's not new knowledge and it's how you ensure that you kind of lay the foundations and you continuously kind of building up upon it. And one of the best ways I've had it explained is a guy called Jamie Byram, who's a history teacher and he talked about Damascus steel and the idea that the way that you make a really quality sword is through the idea that you're kind of layering the metal and then you're knocking it back and then relayering over the top. And that's what the curriculum does. So we've got the opportunity to make sure that whilst we've got these external specifications, which dictate the content that we deliver, that we make sure that through our construction of the curriculum, that we enable them to not only meet that, but also have that wider domain knowledge as well. Because that's really interesting and sort of raises the question, if what we're doing through schools and through the layering of this knowledge over all of these years, from year seven right the way through to GCSE and then to A-level, is just building and building and building, exactly what is it that our students need to catch up to? Well, I think this is where perhaps the phrase catch up is perhaps not helpful because catching up suggests that something has been lost and it's not lost learning because, as I said, we are the architects of the curriculum. And whilst it is that there might be elements of a specification which perhaps might have been removed due to exam kind of determinants, what Ockwell have stated, that doesn't mean that what they're learning isn't rich and isn't quality and aren't the threshold concepts that are going to enable them to be able to move forward. Yes, we've had a reduced diet of perhaps what they may have studied compared to if they've been in class, but that doesn't mean that what they're learning isn't rich and isn't going to prepare them for their next stage in their career. 
And that's what, you know, teachers and curriculum constructors are kind of really focusing on. How can they ensure that the children have the readiness to move on to their next stage, whether that be year seven into year eight? They've got those threshold concepts. And we're ensuring that whilst it is that we haven't had the time and covered the breadth, they've still got that depth and that richness to be able to have that cultural capital and be able to kind of move on to the next sequence in their learning. So this isn't so much about what facts and figures they know or don't know it's more the kinds of skills and the is it the metacognition bits that sit underneath it that enable them to move on exactly it. and what we've got to bear in mind is that knowledge is something which happens over a sequence of lessons so learning is something which isn't kind of in a snapshot moment so it's about how over time we continually retrieve that knowledge and build it up over time. And as he's saying, that's very much about the metacognitive process. So it's not useful for children to rote learn facts and spit them out. That's pub quiz knowledge. But instead, it's the ability to use them powerfully in different contexts and in different situations. So if we can really, really distill down the essential ingredients of a curriculum and then we can revisit it in science and then we can look at it again with them applying it in maths, that's powerful because it can be manipulated and that's when you know that good learning has taken place. Rather than it being like 10 facts, can they regurgitate them off the top of their head? Well, what can they actually use that though? That's what kind of really a rich curriculum is about. It's about making sure that it's transferable, it's malleable and therefore it's powerful. Absolutely love that. I'm definitely going to use that and pretend I came up with all my own pub quiz knowledge. Because I think for many of us, that's the really big distinction, isn't it? Between thinking, well, I'm never going to need geography again. Why bother with it? It's actually because it's not about that. It's about the skills that help you to create the schemas, to learn other stuff and to scaffold and layer and everything else that they'll need in future. Yeah, it's exactly that. So it's things like when you look at the commonalities between science and geography, scientific methods are actually the same. Um, and then when you look at psychology, again, there's that commonality between geography and science in terms of the inferences that they have to make about the data. And likewise, again, it, whilst it might be that someone might not continue studying history, they might go on to do English literature. And if you're looking at war poetry, if you're looking at Mary Wollstonecraft, then you're gonna to want to know about feminism within that kind of period within history. And then what happened within the French Revolution and how that links to Mary Wollstonecraft's work in England. So actually it's about that rich schema development domain so that they can situate that knowledge within the wider context of other subjects and other knowledge and it's even just that thing, you know, if you're wandering around your local town, you're going to be pulling upon things like your geographical skills to be able to kind of read a map and kind of move around, but also looking at buildings and being able to identify, well, that's something from the 1920s. So it's all the everyday things that make us knowledgeable humans. That sounds great for the years that should have been taking their exams now, or maybe for those ones that are a bit further away, because there's still time to, I guess, assess the skills that they've got. But there are some people, so I'm thinking, actually, my daughter, who will be taking her GCSEs next year, that actually there is still that element that the specification is what's likely to be examined. And so it's hard to get away, isn't it, from the fact that there are still specific facts and figures and topics and subtopics and what have you that will need to get taught and that students may have, well, will have fallen behind, if you like. Well, I think this is where, you know, we've got to bear in mind that teachers will have, and I don't like using the phrase because it's overly used at the minute, but a roadmap in terms of ensuring that those children are going to progress with their learning. And I think schools work so hard to make sure that the quality of remote provision is incredibly high using the work of people like Dublin Mob in order to dissolve the screen, to be able to ask effective questions, make it inclusive so that we can make sure that all children are engaging. And inevitably, there will be some children who might not have engaged, perhaps the standard of others. 
but this is where schools are going to be really working hard before the return and on the return to do their research and that will be at a school-wide level but also it's going to be looking at a student subject level so it'll be the case of kind of looking at which students do we need to focus upon are there any pupil groups that might require additional intervention and support from that and then HODs so heads of department will be looking at their subjects and using things like the lessons that we're engaged in and whole school monitoring they'll be able to identify if there are topics that perhaps need that kind of reteaching because a number of students perhaps weren't there in that lesson. And one thing that we'll be doing is using things called PLCs, which are personalised learning checklists. So upon return, what we ask the children to do as part of metacognition and retrieval is we provide them with the list of topics that they've studied, and then they've got to retrieve three facts about each of those topics, and then that informs how strong they feel on those different topics. And this is all low stakes. You know, this isn't kind of like used for any form of judgment or grade. And what that does is it helps to empower them to know which are the areas that they're strong on, but which are also the areas that they need to strengthen. And for a teacher, that can be incredibly illuminating because you can find out at a bespoke child to child level, well, this kid feels confident on the Industrial Revolution, but this one doesn't. So when it comes to my personalised planning, I need to provide some extra scaffolding for this child and this one. And when it comes to the homework, perhaps I'm going to offer a kid to do this piece of homework, but actually this child is going to do that. And those PLCs are really, really great because what we then encourage them to do is the three areas that they need to strengthen the most. We then go through all of the kind of content again within a lesson, going back through those little retrieval things. And then we get them to use their knowledge organizers to then retrieve that knowledge the next lesson on those kind of three key areas that they've identified for themselves. And one child might have three key areas and that might be different to the child next one because that's bespoke to them and what we've identified. And then when they retrieve it, what we see is actually they're able to retrieve that higher level of knowledge. And it's that motivation because you aim for an 80% success rate. And then the children buy into it because they're like, actually, I've retrieved it once. We then kind of relearned it a little bit. I then did some revision that was focused in. And then I've retrieved it again. And actually, instead of knowing three facts before, I now know four. And there's that kind of power that comes with the motivation and the retrieval. And it's kind of creating that kind of appetite, the idea that, you know, nothing is lost. So the idea that if you can retrieve and you do so effectively and you focus it, then, you know, it can be that you can cover ground that previously you might have felt perhaps a little bit shaky on. And it's just about making sure that you identify so you map those in order to master them and then move on. And the teacher's going to be working incredibly hard, as I said, using those PLCs to further again recalibrate their curriculums to identify, well, actually, they feel quite confident on this. So continued cumulative retrieval over time will help to kind of strengthen that to the extent it needs to be. Or actually, I need to reteach this particular part of it because the level that the children are at, they can't move on in the next sequence of learning. And therefore, we need to consolidate this first. So that diet of retrieval and that diagnostic questioning that teachers will be doing throughout their lessons will be really, really informative to that so that they can identify kind of that kind of what needs to be retaught. They can then carry out that guided practice and build that into independent learning. And then what they can do is, again, frequent formative assessment to know when that's been consolidated and when they can move on with the curriculum there. And I think, you know, knowledge organisers sometimes get a bit of stick, but it's all about how you implement them and how you use them. And actually, these are what we would call contracts of essential knowledge. So this isn't the only knowledge that you need to know on this topic. 
but here are the essential pieces of knowledge that you need to know and kind of doing that regular retrieval with them so they've got those foundations in place. All of that sounds absolutely incredible. And I think it's one of the things that parents certainly have come to realise is that there is so much more that happens to teaching than rocking up, opening a textbook and delivering a pre-planned lesson, that there is all of this that happens underneath the surface. From a student's point of view, and actually from a parent's, it can be quite daunting, can't it? If you look back and think, I'm bound to have lost learning or lost time or need to catch up, that unless you actually know, unless you go to the trouble of finding out what it is that you don't know, the areas that you're not comfortable on, then it can be very overwhelming. But there's an awful lot of power in discovering and actually knowing for certain. Even if it feels like it's a lot, at least then you know. Ticking off the uncertainty piece is absolutely key. Yeah, and I think it's about how we as teachers model that. So we can't expect children to be able to situate themselves within the curriculum and understand where that is. So that comes from the modelling and then the frequent and consistent use of that across your kind of school. And there will be differences, you know, because we've got different subjects where different kind of, we've got to allow for some form of subject autonomy. But basically, the more that we can model it and scaffold it, the more that the children then develop the skills to be able to do that more so. But one of the big things that we are kind of working on is transparency of the curriculum. So when the children come to lessons, what we do is we have things called big pictures, which are on our PowerPoints and also in our books. And what we do is we say, look, this is the lesson that we're on. We're on topic two of four topics within your paper. And last lesson, we learned about the Treaty of Versailles, where we discovered X, Y, and Z. This lesson, we're going to be looking at, well, actually, how did that affect the political threats in terms of the left wing and the right wing? So that next lesson, when we have a list of those different lessons, so that we can really situate them in it, so they know that actually, I'm still going to cover that stuff that I need to. And this is how my learning fits in with the wider aspect of it. But again, that comes with being really explicit really transparent and really open with it and then being very mindful about the language that we're using so that when we're talking about this we can say look we learned about the treaty of versailles x y and z and what we're going to do is we're going to strengthen that learning of the treaty of versailles by further tucking into what then happened with the political threats and really making those links explicit and consistent and I do think this is where kind of Rosenshine really has, you know, his principles for instruction are going to be absolutely fundamental because the modelling that we do of this, the scaffolding to ensure that we make sure that every child is able to be taught to the top, but we know which children require additional scaffolds, but also when to remove those as well. And our questioning is going to be so, so powerful as part of that to be able to identify when those scaffolds need to be removed and when not. But I do think a large part of it falls with the language and the idea that this is a collective endeavour. We're doing this, not putting the onus on them because, yes, they are accountable for their learning. But the idea that this is kind of a collective endeavour makes them feel that they're not alone in that and that we've got faith in it. And the more that we can kind of spot that negative language, so if it, you know, if it was that a child said to me, well, you know, I read the other day that there's going to be a crisis in learning, you know, how we can reframe that. And it's almost kind of like almost being a bit like a politician where you answer the question <laughs> that you want to answer. So if the children say something, flip it and turn it into something positive. And that's for us to be able to model how to do that. That sounds very much like the kind of thing that we as parents can be doing at home as well and not using the language that we might be reading in the media, but actually thinking more constructively about how what we're saying is going to have an impact. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's having a look at what your 
school are putting into place in terms of their kind of key mechanisms to support with the return to school. So I've mentioned with us, we've got things like the knowledge organisers and you know, we're working on things like Start for Five. They've got a series of blank sheets where they can do retrieval activities. So I'll be creating a video for parents. We've already got one for children and we've already shown them how to do that, but I'll be creating one for parents so that then they can do that retrieval at home as well. So it's kind of echoing that through at home that actually, you know, this is something that I can do with my child to make sure that those essential ingredients are absolutely kind of secure. And it can provide that real reassurance for both the child and the parent, because the more that they can hear their child kind of being able to kind of recall that information, the more that they can kind of see, well, actually, I feel confident that my child is going to move on into the next sequence of learning. Mm. And definitely, I think before you were talking about the collective responsibility, and it is something I think that we all share, students, teachers, and absolutely the parents and carers and whatever's happening at home. And we've also seen that if, parents are nervous or anxious about what the future might hold and mountain to climb and all of this kind of thing, then there is an absolute certainty that that's going to start rubbing off on the child. And if then they're starting to doubt or starting to feel a lack of confidence, then that's only going to snowball into a much more difficult situation for them to try to get over. Absolutely. So I think it's about echoing that language when you're at home. So if it is that your child is becoming frustrated with their learning or perhaps they're feeling a little despondent about it, how it is that you can not only use the language in order to motivate them, but you can then work with the different tools that your school are using in order to help them to overcome that. So if it is that they're feeling frustrated because, you know, they've looked at this mathematical problem about 10 times and they can't quite do it sort of thing, how it is that you can say, look, you can do it. We're going to strengthen this. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at, say, for example, your knowledge organizer, you've got your timetable on whatever, and what we're going to do is we're going to do some kind of look of a right from that and we're going to retrieve it. And, you know, what we'll also do is we'll go on YouTube and there's, you know, Hegarty maps and we can kind of, so it's about kind of how it is that instead of kind of saying, okay, well, hands up in the air, surrender sort of thing. It's about, well, okay, well, that's good because you've identified that that's an area that you need to strengthen. And that's good because if you didn't, you wouldn't know that you needed to kind of focus on and enhance it. So you've identified that. And the best thing you can do with that is then go and do something about it. So it's almost like instead of seeing like a challenge as something where you put your hands up and actually I can't do this and I've lost my learning. Instead, it's a case of, all right, I didn't know that I didn't know that before. So this is a really good learning opportunity for me. And what can I do about it? What are the things that my school have equipped me with? What can I ask my parents to support with from remote learning? Because we've had an industrial revolution. And let's face it, when it comes to remote learning, children have become more independent. So it's about, you know, well, actually, you have got Hegarty Maths. And remember all these different sites like BBC Bite Size and Oak Academy, where you were directed to. Well, actually, there's that. And, you know, if it is that you can't remember something that was taught during a remote period, well, there'll no doubt be a recorded lesson that your teacher has done. So go back and watch that recorded lesson again. And so it's about how it is that we take this really kind of positive opportunity that's come with this remote learning to actually move learning forward. And as I said, this is a revolutionary moment. And this is the opportunity where I actually feel quite excited, where I can say, well, actually, I've got 10 children. One might have got one lesson that the other one hasn't. So my homework, what I'm going to do is I'm going to direct one kid to one of my recorded lessons and one to a different one. And it just means that it's bespoke in that way and that they've got my explanations there to be able to support them to go back through that work. It's a really interesting perspective because I think an awful lot of bad press is given to remote learning because it's inadequate almost. I mean, it's certainly inadequate when compared to classroom teaching. But certainly, I think with the tech that we had 
you wouldn't choose to do this if you could have got everyone into a classroom safely and all those kinds of things. But actually to hear of it as being, there were still underlying skills that the children have picked up. And I absolutely love the idea that self-direction and self-efficacy might be one of those. That Actually, these students do now know that they can find their own resources if they zoned out a little bit during one of the lessons. They can do a bit of catch up. Yeah, and I have to say, I think, you know, in the period January to February, not that skills weren't kind of there already, but I do have to say, like, I've never seen a community evolve and grow so fast as teachers during the January, February period. Like, what teachers can't do with Teams and what they can't do with Google Classroom, I don't know. And the way that they can model things so incredibly well, it was almost like being in the classroom. Like, when I've watched other people's sessions, I do feel like I'm in the classroom because they're just modeling it so effectively that yes, okay, it might be preferable that they're in the classroom so that we can kind of see those faces to be able to identify that kind of like lost child moment sort of thing. But I think, you know, we pretty much nailed it as much as we could. And I really do think that the quality of remote provision has been incredibly outstanding, incredibly outstanding. And I think the time and effort that teachers have put into continuously improving, doing a lot of self-led CPD is phenomenal. As I said, you know, if I was to go on Twitter and I was to say, has anyone got any idea for questioning during remote learning? I'd be bombarded with about a thousand tweets of effective practice. <laughs> I completely agree from my own experience of seeing M that there were at the beginning, or actually what would have been a year ago, I guess, that some of her teachers took to it really well and some of them didn't. And you can completely understand that. But actually without exception now there's a rhythm that you can see that they've got into and I think it's entirely fair that not everyone's going to be at the same speed no teacher training college has taught remote learning presumably up until this year so actually coming into this and as you say there does seem to be this huge groundswell of support amongst the teaching community for each other and I think often at odds with what you hear and read in the press which is unfortunate to say the very least But coming back to that idea of actually the central bit here, the children have gained these skills, their self-direction, and they can do all of that. But actually, the clincher really is knowing what they don't know and finding that out rather than floundering in the dark or just worrying and becoming consumed by an idea that there's so much more that they need to catch up on. And I say catch up knowing after our conversation that I shouldn't but understand that there is a gap whether it's skill-based or knowledge-based. As I said it's all going to come down to the research that takes place in terms of identifying those different areas and identifying those students but also empowering students so that they're in on it as well it's not like a magician with a hat sort of thing where it is you know that we're keeping this all kind of secret from them it's being very open and modeling this process to them so we're doing our research for our planning but also equally saying to them you know this is for you to be able to use to drive yourself forward as well and frequently doing that and it all comes down to and I know I've said you know it's almost like I need a pound every time I say the word modeling but it's about modeling everything to the children in terms of how we're mapping where they're at so that they can then go on to map where they're at as well we're providing with that information and that transparency of where they are in the curriculum so that they feel assured by that and they know well actually now that I've got my kind of my PLC where I know where my areas of strength and areas for development on this is kind of what I can do my teachers directing me to this and this I know I've got to do but I could also do x y and z as well and I think that's going to be something which is you know really really important to them and you know, we are very aware that guided practice is going to be something which is really 
a key focus of teaching when we return. So it's not just kind of modeling the content and the skill, but also how the children do certain tasks as well. So making sure that, you know, we really are kind of saying, you know, if it is that you're going away and you're retrieving, this is why you're doing it. And it's being really clear about the purpose of why. As I say, I keep coming back to this idea of actually the empowerment. I can't help but wonder whether the real differences are going to be not in whether one school would manage to somehow keep up with the curriculum better than another school, but how individually charged and responsible a student feels for their own education. And actually, they will definitely have had suffered setbacks over the course of the last 12 months. The student that can do that to become a bit more resilient, to really take their learning ball by the horns, if you like, is going to absolutely thrive, surely. Yeah, and I think, again, a lot of work will be done by schools upon the return to work in terms of how it is that we can support in terms of well-being. So ensuring that all children are kind of feeling positive about the return to school and supporting families in terms of how they feel about the return to school so that we can echo that through. And there will be a lot of time spent working with the children in terms of how to study skills and that sort of thing. And there will inevitably, and I can imagine this happening in every school, be a focus on literacy as well. Daisy Cridistadulau did some research that came out in September, which identified that year seven children, this current year seven cohort, are on average 22 months behind their peers the year before. So with that, you know, we could put our hands up and say, oh, well, that's a nightmare, that sort of thing. But instead, well, actually, what can we do? Well, let's read aloud to the children. Let's use books like The Writing Revolution to identify three really good writing strategies. So how to do subject paragraph outlines, kernel sentences that we can train the children to be able to do. So we can train them to do retrieval because as Kate Jones identifies, if you get that 80% success rate, you're going to get that motivation. So even if you've got children who aren't perhaps feeling motivated, who perhaps aren't feeling engaged upon the return, it can be through showing them these different study skills by working with them on their literacy so that they can take on board this new vocabulary and then access the text that they're doing and how it is that we can use things like retrieval where they feel motivated because they can see and feel that success. And they're like, actually, you know, I wasn't feeling motivated before, but I actually know some stuff and my stuff's getting better over time. And that is something which I think is, it's almost like the litmus test. It's kind of how you make sure that they have a taste of success so that when they return, the whistles are wet for it, but also really making sure that you are identifying those children who perhaps are, and you really kind of bespoke planning for them. So planning for people progress, but also looking at your structures within school in terms of your pastoral support, because it might be that, you know, a child might benefit from mentoring. Actually, it's their organisation, which means that they're perhaps not feeling motivated about the return. So how is it that you can pair them up with a teacher who can help to kind of just be there as their kind of guide in the morning and at night time saying, let's set a target for the day. How's it going? And meet at the end of the day and just kind of like pat them on the back. So I think it's, you know, identifying that intervention and mentoring so that the children know that they have this support. It is there. It's almost kind of like we've got this sort of thing. And it's just kind of like, you know, another way of saying to the children, like, we've got this, we've got you, we know you're better than anyone and you've got this, so let's just kind of crack on with everything. Because there is definitely a sense of optimism, isn't there, about that, which is, again, really powerful because they're in a situation which is different to last year, but it doesn't mean to say it's inferior. So actually the stuff that they're made of, the stuff that they're learning and the way that they tackle this obstacle and future problems is going to shape so much of their future more than the specific 
facts and figures that may have been lost in the course of the year. And it's not a sprint either, is it? Which is the thing I, I guess I keep coming back to is thinking, catching up with what? It's not as if your learning's over and done with by the time you leave school or college or university. So there's no one goalpost you're going to. It's, I suppose, finding that way that children can be encouraged to carry on and want to do more. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's referring about, you know, when we look at September, look at how well the children kind of responded to that September return and how quickly they were able to kind of bounce back, if you like, during that period. And it's that kind of resilience and that idea, because, you know, if you go on into a future career where you're an architect, there are going to be times that you're going to come across hurdles, you know, the building might not go ahead, it might be delayed. So how do you respond to that in a positive developmental way where you think, right, okay, here's a barrier, it put me back. However, what I'm going to do about this is I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I think there's been lots of other powerful learning opportunities which have come during this time. So things like digital literacy and also the focus on digital literacy. So prior to this, you know, how many children knew how to use things like Google Classroom? How many children knew how to write an email that was appropriate and the etiquette was there as well? And yet we're moving into a workplace where it is that everything is nigh on done by email. But if it is, you know, that they can't construct that, then that's a massive thing. And I think it has kind of raised the light on that and also about how much we now need to focus on extended writing because whilst it is inevitably we've had these opportunities such as they've had the digital literacy and how they can type and they can engage in what is a growing kind of technological world, how it is that as well those traditional skills such as extended writing, handwriting, how we can then make sure that those are symbiotically kind of taken with them as well. That's particularly interesting as someone who used to do a lot of recruitment in large corporations that you would hear that or see that time and time again, that actually there was a gulf between the skills that an employer needs and the ones that students might have. So actually, it's a really interesting point you make that actually this may have accidentally, but certainly beneficially sort of plugged some of that and given them an awareness of what needs to be done. I think so. I think the children are very app literate. I think, you know, many children are fortunate enough to have smartphones, but apps work different from laptops. And also the context of it, they'll be using it in social contexts as opposed to using it in kind of an appropriate work context. They know how to use Snapchat and TikTok and all that sort of jazzy stuff. But actually, do they know how to use an Excel spreadsheet? And, you know, how can an accountant move into accountancy without knowing an Excel spreadsheet? And if you're not learning that until you get to a certain level within your school, then that's the thing. So I think it's, again, about how remote learning and how perhaps it is that we can create things like how-to videos on how to kind of take what they've laid in terms of the foundation and take that forward in terms of their digital literacy. And I think they have learned skills in terms of how to engage appropriately, you know, as teachers that's kind of echoed as how you might speak to your boss in terms of your etiquette. It's just those little things like a lot of children didn't know how to attach things to an email or how to upload things. And again, you know, how can you apply for a job if you don't know how to upload your CV? So it's those little golden moments where I think actually, you know, there has been some really good learning taking place. You are so right. And I think it's, again, just really highlights the fact that it's so easy for us or we're very quick to focus on the things that have been lost rather than actually looking for some of those positives. And I don't mean scrabbling around looking desperately for a silver lining in a cloud. These might seem trivial to people who upload and send CVs and email attachments and all that kind of stuff. But actually for the students, these are quite big moments. Yeah, I think the teachers are kind of really good role models within this because this time last year, 
you know, remote learning, blended learning to teachers was a foreign country. And, you know, it's like the past is a foreign place. It very much was that. And as someone who's now in charge of remote learning, and I had no skills of remote learning beforehand, I think actually teachers have been, I would like to see more kind of championing of this, how much teachers have been role models in terms of they've completely done like a complete renaissance or kind of, you know, they've, they've evolved so much in terms of what they can now do with remote learning they can do cold calling they can put children into breakout rooms they can provide send specific support you know they can do high crafted modeling of like a 45 mark question you know where they take every single of the 30 children through it that's amazing to have done within a year and if we can say look you know if these old dogs can learn new tricks then I'm pretty sure that at your age you know you'll be all right to be able so you know the first time you're doing like a sum and it doesn't make sense or the first time that you know you're looking at a period in history and it doesn't make sense we'll just keep on going at it because that was me with remote learning and look where I am now. <laughs> you can see that echoed in households so the children are learning but so are the parents and parents are figuring out how to support the children with the OneNote and the uploads and or learning themselves, certainly in my case, and I am a self-confessed nerd, but there was an awful lot that my daughter's shown me about the collaboration tools that they're using. And these are the future. So as you say, parents are learning, teachers are learning, and students absolutely are. You know, we can see kind of grandparents who are engaging in it. I mean, my mum's even learned not to hold a phone like under a chin when she's on a Zoom call sort of thing. So it's all these like marginal gains that we kind of make. But I think as much as I've talked about there being kind of like this revolution within technology, there has been a revolution not only within society in terms of how we can engage with perhaps family members that live abroad or live further away, that sort of thing. But also, I don't think the workplace will ever return to kind of what it is. You will have more people who are working from home. You will have more meetings which are now in a digital context because they know that that can take place and I feel that this has been an opportunity for the children to be immersed in a similar context where they're kind of able to to take that into the workplace so they'll know kind of like how to attend a meeting and how to kind of respond in the chat box and you know if we think about it in kind of particularly creative industries, there might be a shared kind of like whiteboard. So lots of teachers have been using things like Jamboard and Whiteboard FI, where everyone will pool their kind of knowledge and ideas onto kind of one singular sheet simultaneously. And that's what might happen during a training session in any form of institutional business where it's like, right, okay, let's spitball some ideas. Let's put things down on paper. But I do think it has revolutionized society as well. Like the amount of people that you can now connect with and in so many different ways is really, really good. And I think it has provided opportunities as well. So extracurricular ones and ones in terms of cultural capital. So we were very fortunate that through the Holocaust Memorial Society that we were able to speak to a Holocaust survivor, which was an incredibly powerful opportunity for our students to be able to kind of ask those questions of that person. We might not have had that opportunity considering we're quite up far in the north and this person is stationed down in the south and it's predominantly the south where these people are able to kind of travel from because they are aging. That is quite a journey. So it's actually provided those different opportunities there as well. Mm, that sounds incredible. As you say, so there are a number of them, sort of these benefits if you take the time to find them. The other benefits as well as I think, you know, 
with this before remote learning and everything, when a child was perhaps absent from school for a couple of days, they would come back to school and then we'd get them caught up in the work there. But actually we can set that learning remotely now so they can catch up kind of remotely. And if it is that a child has a medical condition that means you know that they might have broken a leg and they're off school for three weeks because they can't in, come into school, they're not going to miss out on that learning. And, you know, obviously beforehand we would have printed off work and we would have sent it to them. But actually we can now respond to them digitally and provide that support and provide that video and that scaffolding. And also, you know, it's an opportunity for parents as well to be able to kind of sit with them and be like, well, actually, you know, your teachers just said X, Y and Z. This is how you engage in this piece of work. So children who are absent for medical reasons and, and things like that, it's, it's going to be kind of a real groundbreaker for them as well and I think for teachers as well it's particularly benefit because if you're someone who's on maternity leave you know you can engage in this CPD kind of explosion which has taken place so that when you return to the classroom you've been able to take part in this different virtual CPD that you might not have been able to before. You say there are aspects of the system that we have now that actually you might design it like this if you were looking at those outlying cases of people who maybe can't get into school for one reason or another that you might as you say sort of build in a factor of remote and distance learning for them yeah exactly then and so it's about how we make sure that our education is inclusive so you know that inclusivity making sure that children irrespective of their kind of their situations and context have the same equal opportunities and every single school prior to this would have been doing everything they could to make sure that that's the case but what this has provided us with is is another string to our bow in terms of well actually if they've got kind of a laptop then what we can do is we can do recorded videos of them and you know we can give them kind of feedback in terms of their work rather than collecting it in at the end of the week and I think that could be really reassuring for the children as well in terms of anxiety because if it is that a child's been off for a week because they've been unwell they're going to be panicking and thinking oh my god I've got so much work to catch up on but actually you know they could take the weekend if they're feeling better to get caught up on that work that the teachers assign them or the teacher can say look you know chip away at it over a series of x amount of time we'll set a fair deadline and you know you've got my recorded powerpoints to support you to be able to do that rather than just kind of working through it yourself i think that's a really interesting twist on that idea of catching up isn't it that actually what the pandemic has done for people who work in more office environments is provide a flexibility for parents who are juggling maybe job and a bit of homeschooling that what's tended to have happened is she may be answering some of the emails in the evening after dinner because couldn't get to the do them during the day. And actually the same kind of idea could apply for students as well. So, so long as we've got that self-direction and so long as they feel empowered enough to do it, that actually then they can take much more responsibility for their own studying and their education over the time that suits them. Yeah, that's it. I think, you know, the world has been opened up to them in terms of, you know, that actually rather than relying on the teacher to always provide them with the information, the teacher will provide them with the fundamentals and will scaffold how then to go and research something further in depth. So they now know that they can kind of go out into that vast wide worldwide web and kind of find that information as well. Alex, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights. This year, students have not covered the kinds of topics and curriculum that they would have done without the pandemic. And that's a simple fact. But the impact that that might have had is not as straightforward. The curriculum that schools deliver isn't simply about embedding facts and figures. Education is nuanced and it's about core skills and about layering learning and helping students to develop schema to learn more. 
In any class, that happens at different levels and at different speeds. And teachers work to help each pupil attain their best and to prepare them for their next steps. With COVID, we've had a more universal impact, but the underlying issue is something that teachers have dealt with every year. As Alex said, teachers have got this. I think we do have a tendency to focus on where students ought to be. That is to say, we're looking more at what's been missed. So I thought it was really interesting to hear from Alex about some of the unintended benefits that that lockdown has given. And actually not just for pupils, but also for teachers and for parents too. For students, there have been practical skills around the use of digital that have been gained through necessity, but also a mindset to be flexible and fluid with their learning. And all this has come from having to learn remotely. This isn't just my half-full nature shining through. It's a recognition that there have been challenges, but there are also opportunities. And isn't that the same in most situations we'll face in life? This outlook, together with the language that we use, is so important. Our young people have had a tumultuous few months. Uncertainty, social isolation and confinement are not going to be improved by us adding a feeling of inadequacy and helplessness to them. What's important here is empowerment and control, and of knowing that their situation isn't insurmountable. You can't possibly hope to overcome a problem if you don't understand the nature of it, though. And practical thinking is the best place to start. So where are you now? Where do you need to be? And how are you going to get there? The first step is practical. Identify where the students are currently. And this can be done in a number of ways, as Alex explained. And teachers will be geared to help with that assessment. Identifying the desired end state can be done with reference to exam specifications or again, materials from school. So now you've got a good basis for a plan on how you move forward. For those parents who are interested, we've created study summaries that can help with the identification process. And these can act as personalised checklists for students in their GCSE years. For more information, check out thestudybuddy.com and there you'll also find plenty of other information about how to create robust study timetables and plans too. I think the most important thing to take away from everything that Alex has said is that we as parents and students do not need to panic. Yes, our young people might not be as far along in a course as they would otherwise have been, but they will cover everything they need to by the time they need it. That's what teachers are there for. It's their raison d'etre. Besides, education isn't a one-hit thing. It's something that we continue to do. And so... Maybe to that end, students this year will be served well by these lessons that they've learned, the lessons of resilience and self-determination, more than they will have been impacted by missing out for a brief period of time on some specific facts and figures. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as interesting and useful as I have. If you did, would you mind taking a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too? really does help us reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.